Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's October the 6th, 2021. I'm talking to you from San Francisco, uh, the Northern California town on, or city. I don't know if it's a city or a town. Uh, on the Pacific Coast. I hope you're all well. Regular listeners of this show know that we've been, for better or worse, preoccupied with the issue of race and racism and the experience and history of African Americans in America. It comes up so often over about probably the last three or four weeks. We've had shows featuring Christine Henning on how racist policing in America is discriminating against children. It was a particularly dark, depressing show. We had Connertown O'Neill on the ugly legacy of white supremacy and the, the continuation of monuments of racism in the South. We had Keith Boykin, the CNN mm -hmm. commentator, talking about the politics of the end of white supremacy in America. We had Bill Steigerwald on the experience of, 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 white, of, a, of a white journalist living like a black man and experiencing what it was like to be black in America um, in the early part of the, uh, in the middle of the 20th century. And as too often, we had Jay Chester Johnson on the Elaine Race Massacre. We've had a number of shows about massacres in um in a number of these shows, the issue that the book that keeps on coming up, um, and I actually need to read it, is Gunnar Mardal's, the, the Swedish um, sociologist, his 1944 book, really iconic, paradigmatic book about race in America called An American Dilemma, The Negro Problem and Modern Democracy, um, which talks about the centrality of race, the uniqueness of race relations and racism in America. And I think uh, today, once again, we're back with the issue of race. Um, and one of America's leading uh, legal scholars and indeed uh, political scholars of any kind is uh, Randall Kennedy. He's been teaching at Harvard Law School. In fact, he taught my first wife law back in the uh, early 1990s. He's been teaching at Harvard Law School for, um, for, for, for many years, too many years, I'm sure. I don't want to <laughs> reveal his age. Uh, he has a new book of essays, really interesting and very accessible essays called Say It Loud. And I'm really thrilled and honored that uh, uh, Randall Kennedy is joining us from his uh, house, his home just outside Cambridge, Mass. Uh, Randall, I I'm sure you, you're familiar with the, uh, the Mardal uh, book. Um, yes. Has anything changed since... Uh, since uh, Gunnar Mardal wrote his book in 1944 about the American dilemma, the uniqueness of race relations and racism in America? Yes, a great deal has changed. Uh, it's a great book, An American Dilemma, um, but a great deal has changed. I mean, in when he wrote that book, uh, large swaths of America prevented black people from voting. So for instance, in my home state, I'm from South Carolina. I was born in 1954 in Columbia, South Carolina. In 1944, the Democratic Party in South Carolina formally, openly excluded black people 
from participating in Democratic Party primaries. And that was very important because uh, South Carolina was a one-party state. If you won the, if whoever won the Democratic Party primary would win whatever post they, you know, they, they were contending for. So that was very important, not only in South Carolina, but in many of the Southern states. Um, obviously that's not the case now. Uh, Joseph Biden, the current president of the United States, when he won the South Carolina primary, he was on his way to victory uh, as the standard bearer for the Democratic Party, largely, largely because of the support of Black South Carolinians. So a, a lot's changed. I mean, in 1944, no one would have, you know, no one would have been thinking about a a Black person on the Supreme Court of the United States, a Black person as being President of the United States, a Black person heading up the Department of Justice. So. Yes, there's been a lot of change. We still, however, face an American dilemma. Uh, the book begins with a, a very sharp, short intro, uh, Randall, in which you say there are three, three things which sort of, in a, in a meta sense, dominate the, the, the current situation of race in America. Uh, you say, on the one hand, it's still central. Secondly, there is some good news. But thirdly, mm -hmm. you use two words which I'm intrigued with. You say the conversation and the situation is complex and messy. What do you mean by the complex messiness of, of race relations in America today? Well, um, it's complex because on the one hand, there's been a lot of change. On the other hand, there is a sobering continuity. I mean, um, Donald Trump became president of the United States. And in his run for re-election, he lost, but he was close. And here we have a politician who very openly uh, tapped into and exploited and uh, nurtured racial resentment in a very base way. Uh, that's part of our reality. And that's very sobering. I, I, are there better words though than complex or messy? Maybe a better word would simply be ugly. Well, yeah. some parts of it are ugly. You know, I was listening to your introduction or I was listening to you describe the previous books that you've covered and, you know, very fine books, very important. I would say to the audience, it is very important to recognize the continuing presence of racism in American life. Absolutely. It's very deep. It's pervasive. That's true. It is also, however, very important to recognize counter traditions. There's an anti, there is a racist tradition in America. There's also an, an anti-racist tradition. You know, people, people should know about John C. Calhoun, you know, believing in, you know, the, that, that slavery was a positive good. People should know about the segregationists. People should know about racism, the way in which racism manifests itself today. That's all that's true. But people should also know about William Lloyd Garrison 
and Charles Sumner and the, the marvelous people who have and who have continued to struggle against racism in American life. Both of those things we need to know about. We had Heather McGee on the show recently. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with her new book, mm-hmm. in which she, she pretty much, or maybe, uh, I don't know if I'm being fair to her work. I mean, she was a wonderful interviewer and a, and a tremendous writer. She has an, an excellent new book, The Sum of All Things. Mm-hmm. She seems to suggest that most things in America, particularly political things that get us to scratch our head, that they have some sort of racial or racist foundations. Do you think there's any truth to that? Well, the race question is absolutely central in American life. And it has conditioned many things. So, for instance, you know, the electoral college, um, the, you know, so much of our constitutional structure has a racial fingerprint on it. I mean, you know, the United States of America, if you go back to the founding, what what were the issues that were that had to be that had to be faced in order to get those 13 uh, contentious colonies together to form a new nation? Well, one of the most important issues was racial slavery. And the fight over racial slavery touched so many aspects of the American legal system, the relationship between the federal government and the states, the allocation of power, the whole question of, you know, um, the slave trade. There were so many things, and, and that has continued. So there is much about what she said that is absolutely true. You, you take a look at something important in American life and you follow it, and there is often going to be a racial angle. But so not always. Instance, I mean, that's the interesting thing. And perhaps you're not always. You're perhaps willing to st- stick your head up above the ramparts and say it's not always the case. We had, and, and I'm, I know you're very familiar with her work, Carol Anderson. She's an old friend of mine. Mm-hmm. She's been on the show several times magnificent polemicist, scholar, writer. Uh, But you gave her latest book about connecting Mm -hmm. slavery and the the, the right to bear arms. You gave it, I thought, at least a fairly lukewarm review in the Times. Mm -hmm. Was there implicitly, at least in that review, a warning that not everything can be explained in terms of race in America? Yes. Yes. uh, you, You are correct. And I think uh, that sometimes people actually make too much of the racial issue. So I'll give you an example. I mean, um, let's let's take the police. When 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 people talk about police brutality, um, very 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 often the discussion is about race. Now, it's true that um, black people have faced huge problems with the police over the course of American history. It's true that there is racist policing. All of that's true. At the same time, it seems to me it's a mistake to engage in the discussion about policing 
as if it was all about race. You know, there are, there, there are a lot of uh, white people who are shot by the police every year. There are a lot of white people who are brutalized by the police and mistreated by the police. And so if you only talk about it in terms of race, I think you, you actually lose important facets of the discussion. Poverty. Very often, I mean, I talk with people and, you know, you, you would think that the only impoverished people in the United States are people of color. You know, well, you know, there are plenty, there are white people who are impoverished. And it seems to me that... Um, I don't think anyone plight. would deny that. I mean, even, even the most hardcore uh, figures on the left, I mean, no one's going to deny that there are poor white people. You, they wouldn't, they wouldn't deny it when you expressly push the point, but in a discussion, um, you know, I'm very often in conversations with people, and if the issue is poverty, if the issue is police misconduct, one just listening to our conversation would have the impression that it's it's totally a racial thing and it's not it seems to me that ought to be recognized um, is this your polite law school way of critiquing black lives matter no it's not a i listen i'm pretty straightforward if i want to issue a critique i'll you know i don't i don't mind doing it um i do have some so for instance black lives matter i salute Black Lives Matter in the in, to the extent that it has been very that movement has been very successful in putting the problem of police misconduct front and center in American life. That was a tremendous that tremendous you know tremendous success, tremendous achievement. So wonderful. I'm 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 you know I I, I salute that and that needed to be done. Uh, am I some? Am I am I critical? Yeah, I'm critical sometimes. So, for instance, um, I don't think that it should be the case. I, I've 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 witnessed events in which people who were obviously sympathetic to the values of Black Lives Matter and to the to the mission of Black Lives Matter, I've seen people who were sympathetic be harshly condemned. Why? Because in their discussion, they said, well, of course, Black Lives Matter, but, you know, all lives matter. And then people, boo, you can't say that. <laughs> it seems to me, what do you mean you can't say that? What they are saying well, you, is... you can say it. I probably can't, right? Well, I mean, it seems to me that anyone should be able to say all lives matter and to the extent that black lives have been diminished we need to uphold the standard that all lives matter and black lives matter too there's nothing wrong with that and i don't i don't I, and and you know you know from reading my book i'm very critical when people jump on um, what they, you know, sort of don't go along with certain rhetorical formulas. 
So again, you know, all lives matter. Oh, you know, you can't say that. What, what do you mean you can't say that? Listen to the per listen to what they're saying. If what they're saying is, of course, all lives matter. And when I say all lives matter, I really mean all lives, black lives, brown lives, yellow lives. If they're saying that they are in tune with the ultimate mission, what should be the ultimate mission of all of us, which is uh, nurturing a, a polity in which all people are accorded due respect. That's the spirit of the book, say it loud. And you are not just saying it loud in the book, you're saying it loud now, Randall, I love it. I love it, uh, it's in keeping with your t-shirt. Um, I was intrigued. There was a, a, a um, headline in the New York Times, a review of the book, and, I, and I, I thought it was rather unfair. It says, on matters of race, Randall Kennedy demands thinking over feeling. Do you think that's fair about the book and your general take on all this stuff? Thinking over feeling? Can we distinguish thinking and feeling, <laughs> especially when it comes to the history of race in America? Well, I, you know... Um, Frankly, I think that we have more control over our feelings than we often acknowledge. Um, so I'm, I'm, I guess I'm somewhat skeptical of the sharp distinction that that headline draws. Um, we, 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 we can train our feelings. And I think that we can make choices about our feelings. I don't think it's the case that something happens and then we immediately have some sort of, you know, feeling about it. Our, our feelings are trained. Our feelings are nurtured. Our feelings are educated. So, you know, in, in, in my view, thinking and feeling you know, are they different? Yeah, they're, 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 they're somewhat different, but I think in both cases, we have considerable control over them and we should try to educate them. Uh, you can think and say it loud. I'm curious as to the, the title of the book. Why did you choose Say It Loud? Well, um, I thought it was a catchy title. And it's a great tune. reference to uh, the great James Brown. James Brown. That's right. I wrote one of the essays in the book uh, is an essay that I wrote um, to commemorate James Brown's Say It Loud. Say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. And, uh, you know, I, I wrote this essay and I, I thought that it would it would serve as a, as a nice title. One of the things that you know, one of the things in the uh, that I try to do in the book is always turn things over and search for the problems. You know, and say it loud on, has a problem. I love the I love the song. I remember it very well. I mean, I was a teenager. Did you see him? Um, did you see? I just saw a documentary on on the Apollo Theater in Harlem and, and Brown. I think he used to do five or six shows a day. Did you ever see him there? <laughs> I've never saw him. I've never saw him live. And I have not seen that documentary. I've seen the feature film about him. Um, and 
you know, the, the interesting thing for me about the song, I, again, I was thrilled when it came out. It, it moved me. At the same time, in my essay, I talk about, well, why was it the case that this entertainer thought that he had to proclaim this? I mean, usually when people feel, you know, feel at home, feel at ease, they don't go around saying I'm proud to be such and such. You usually say I'm proud to be such and such when you are under attack. And of course, that was the case. He felt that he needed to say this. Why? Because when he came out with this song, it was still the case that uh, in, in, in many precincts of Black America, um, to call somebody Black was, was to start a fight. Blackness was still stigmatized even in black America. And he, he sang this song in order to sort of confront that stigmatization. And I wanted to you know just point out the stigmatization of blackness even within black America and talk about the way in which actually that continued. You know, that that sort of that colorism within black America continued. And frankly, it's, you know, it's, it's, it hasn't been completely defeated. It's, it's still present today. Uh, you, you write about a number of really great figures in mm -hmm. uh, African-American history. I loved your essay on Frederick Douglass uh, and on Thurgood Marshall. Is there one figure in African-American history who in particular you have sort of nailed your life to? that you've tried to emulate, that you're so inspired by? Is it, uh, I'm, I'm guessing it's it's Douglas, but maybe I'm wrong. I have a number. I, 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 I think I've been benefited tremendously by learning about people from whom I've taken inspiration. And I've been even luckier in having known some of these people. So frankly, at the top of my list, for people who have influenced me and who have enriched my life, I would put my father, uh, Henry H. Kennedy Sr. He's not a person who's in, you know, he's not in any books. Mm. He was a great he was, father. He worked in the post office, right? He worked in the post office. He was a modest man. He was a great man. Uh, he was a great husband. He was a great father. Uh, truly inspirational figure. Um, I'm going to, can you see me right there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that, so who's that? That's Medgar Evers. That's oh, a picture okay. of Medgar Evers. Medgar Evers, great man. Medgar Evers was the head of the NAACP in Mississippi. He was killed. He was shot to death right in front of his home in June 1963. One of the great people of the Second Reconstruction. I um, had the great pleasure of meeting on a number of occasions, John Lewis, mm. you know, one of the founders of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, who then went on to have a wonderful career uh, in the House of Representatives, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. And then of course, Thurgood Marshall. I mean, I'm a lawyer. And for one year, I had the great privilege of working for Mr. Civil Rights in the 1983 Supreme Court term. For a solid year, I would go to work and I would have the privilege of talking with Thurgood Marshall. So, 
And you mentioned Frederick Douglass, clear Frederick Douglass, absolutely extraordinary. Absolutely. And here's a man born into enslavement who runs away, he's a fugitive slave, and becomes one of the great journalists, one of the great orators, knew a lot about a lot of subjects, including the law. He was a person who was willing to change his mind. When he begins his career as an abolitionist, he begins as a Garrisonian abolitionist who thought that the United States Constitution was a pro-slavery document. He changes his mind and says, no, it can be read in a different way. It can be read as a document that is against slavery. So Frederick Douglass is one of my, yes, he's one of my heroes. And I could go on and on. I, I, I take a lot of comfort from these people who are, again, part of the anti-racist tradition. Don't forget that. That's a very important tradition in American life. I asked you, of course, about men. Uh, and it's interesting that you, you, you only told me about uh, men. As I said, we've, we've had uh, a number of women. Um, Heather McGee, an African-American woman, wonderful new book. Um, uh, Martha S. Jones, another important book, yes. another scholar about women's rights. And of course, the great Carol Anderson. What about African-American women? Um, Wonderful. Their, like, okay. Randall, who has influenced you? What, what African-American woman, perhaps in addition to your mother, have you learned something from? Oh, many. So uh, the great Rosa Parks, the great Rosa Parks. You know, many people think of Rosa Parks and they only think of her uh, resistance to giving up her seat on the bus in December 1955, kicking off the Montgomery bus boycott, which was one of the great moments in the history of the world. Rosa Parks was throughout her life an anti-racist uh, activist. So before the Montgomery bus boycott, Rosa Parks had spent a, a, a good bit of time investigating um, sexual crimes committed against black American women that the legal system did not take seriously. Yet she did. And she tried to document these crimes. She tried to get uh, law enforcement people to uh, prosecute these crimes. Uh, she was a great person. Fannie Lou Hamer. I mean, here's, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer. Here's this person who is a, you know, a, a sharecropper who rises up and takes America by its throat in the summer of 1964 during the uh, Democratic National Convention. She, she gets on television and talks about what she and other of her colleagues in Mississippi are facing. So there are you know, a you know, number of... Uh, one of my favorite cases, I'm writing a book, my next book is a book about uh, the Second Reconstruction. It's a legal history of the Second Reconstruction. One of my favorite cases is a very obscure case. It's a case called Hamilton versus Alabama. Hamilton is Mary Hamilton, a young person. She was an activist. She worked for the Congress of Racial Equality. She was arrested and uh, she was brought to trial for, you know, trespass. She was engaged in, you know, sit-ins or something of that sort. 
a prosecutor has her on the witness stand and says to her, Mary, why were you arrested? And this person responds by saying, my name is Miss Mary Hamilton. Mm. The prosecutor responds by saying, Mary, why were you arrested? And she responds by saying, my, my full and proper name is Miss Mary Hamilton. At that point, the prosecutor turns to the judge and says, judge, direct the witness to respond. The judge turns to Miss Mary Hamilton and says, respond or I will hold you in criminal contempt of court immediately. She responds by saying, my name is Miss Mary Hamilton, at which point she is, um, she is the, 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 the judge says, you are in criminal contempt, five days in jail. This case goes up to the Supreme Court of the United States. The Supreme Court of the United States reverses her conviction, but she did spend those five days in jail. I think that what Miss Mary Hamilton did was absolutely extraordinary. It was wonderful. She was part of a whole cadre of people who did wonderful things. And again, I say, don't forget them. Well, I hope you'll come back on the show uh, to talk about the uh, to talk about her and the new book. Not everyone comes out of your book with the same um, positive. Uh, Write up the uh, um, for, from uh, from Randall Kennedy, Clarence Thomas, of course, uh, the only African American member of the Supreme Court. Uh, you're less kind about him in in, in, a, in a quite a sharp essay. What what's what's Clarence Thomas done wrong, according to Randall Kennedy? Um, the essay you're referring to is an essay in which I call for the ostracism of Clarence Thomas. I'm pluralistic. I believe that there's, you know, that people, you know, people have lots of different views. And I think that lots of different views ought to be respected. I don't think that uh, his views with respect to certain important issues ought to be respected. And I am harshly critical of him. Ostracism say, meaning we we ignore him, we tell him to shut up, we throw we we throw him off the court. We um we make evident, we make evident in whatever way we can, our disapproval, our strong disapproval of the positions that he has taken. So, for instance, there's some conservatives who are critical of uh, you know, black American institutions, black American organizations that uh, refuse to honor Justice Thomas. There was a time when I was more sympathetic to him. Um, I think I was a sap. I, I apologize for the position that I previously took. I don't think that organizations, any organization in the United States, frankly, should honor Justice Thomas. There are a whole bunch of, um, of, of cases and you know, episodes I could turn to, but the, 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 the one that's at the top of the list was Clarence Thomas's vote in um, uh, Shelby County versus Holder a case decided by the Supreme Court five to four that 
eviscerated the Voting Rights Act of 1965. To me, that was a terrible opinion, a judicial delinquency, and Justice Thomas was part of that. And for that, I'm, 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 I'm harshly critical. Randy, you've taught at uh, Harvard Law for, for a while, many years. I, I don't know if you if you taught Obama, uh, but of course he went through the law school. Um, you also write and you touch on Trump in the book and this shift from Obama to Trump. I, I don't want to turn this into another rant against Trump, but in historical context, how do you fit the Obama presidency and the Trump presidency? Is it something just bizarre? Is it just a, a kind of an episode of soap opera in American history? Or is there something more structural to it? There's something more structural to it. It's not bizarre. Uh, we've seen this before. In the 19th century, in the aftermath of the Civil War, there was Reconstruction, uh, the abolition of slavery, the elevation of, uh, of the former slaves to citizenship, federal citizenship, uh, new limits put on uh, the, the states. Uh, black men, not women, but black men became part of the electoral system. You had blacks who were, uh, you know, who, who, were, who sat in the House of Representatives. You had blacks who sat in the Senate. You had blacks who were important figures in state government. Uh, and then what did you have? You had a reaction against that, a deep, bloody, horrific reaction. That was in the 19th century. Well, okay, go forward in time. Uh, you have a black person who becomes president of the United States. You have a black family that's occupying the White House. And frankly, it deranged millions of Americans. It absolutely deranged. Simply because he was black? Yes. Yes. Now, you know, it's not, I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that um, everybody who rallied around Trump was doing so out of racism. There's, you know, again, America's a huge country. 300 million people. There's lots of things going on. A race is not the only thing. You know, there's foreign policy. There's, you know, aspects of political economy that don't have much to do with race, globalization, all sorts of things, gender politics, lots of things going on. Race is important, but it's not the whole thing. But ask yourself, you know, what was it? How, how did how did Donald Trump, what, what, what were the things that he said that actually, um, you know, put him in the upper tier of the Republicans seeking to be the standard bearers for the Republican Party? Well, certainly one of his things had to do with his calling into question whether Barack Obama was even eligible to be president, the whole birtherism thing. Right, and you have uh, you have an essay or two on birtherism, excellent essays in the book. So, I mean, clearly Donald Trump was obviously trafficking in racial resentment. He was doing it to get elected. He did it to try to get reelected. And the fact that he could tap into that 
the fact that he could effectively tap into that, you know, is, is a part of American life. There were people, by the way, who said, um, you know, who were who were very concerned uh, when um, President when 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 Barack Obama was running. There were some people who said, "Oh my gosh, you know." We're very concerned because we fear that if he is elected, it will trigger a terrible reaction. And by the way, I chastised some of those people. I was very cross. I said, oh, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're being too alarmist. You're being too alarmist. This is, this is part of our past. I was very chastising. Guess what? I was wrong. They were on to something. So the reaction against Barack Obama, no, it's not bizarre. It's part and parcel of the American racial dilemma. Uh, Randall, you, you, your story, your life story, I hope um, we're going to hear more about that life story at some point in, uh, in, in your writing career. Your life story is very unusual. You were born, as you say, in, in South Carolina, in Columbus. Uh, you went to school in uh, Washington, D.C., then Princeton, then you became a, a Rhodes Scholar, been teaching law for many years. Do you regret not going into politics like, uh, like an Obama? Do you think that your life has been well spent in law school? Yes. I'm, I'm 67 years old now, and um, I feel deeply grateful. And one of the things about which I'm deeply grateful is um, I've been able to spend the bulk of my days doing work that I thoroughly enjoy. My workplace, Harvard Law School, has been a wonderfully supportive place. I have wonderful colleagues. I have wonderful students. Um, I'm doing what I like to do. I'm doing work that gives me a tremendous amount of pleasure. So, you know, no, I don't, I don't, I don't have any regrets. I feel like I, I, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm doing what I like to do. And what you're doing, of course, is saying it loud. Uh, this wonderful collection of essays by Randall Kennedy is, is just out. Uh, Randall, in addition to your new collection of essays, what are you reading, listening to? I hope you're listening to some James Brown still. <laughs> I love to listen to my oldies. I love Motown. I love um, Al Green. I love church music. So I listen a lot to Mahalia Jackson. Um, you got to see you know, that. And, you got to see that documentary on the Apollo, and also on I, the uh, uh, the. Um, I don't remember what it's called. It's the, not the Black Woodstock, but it was the equivalent of Black Woodstock in nineteen sixty nine in Harlem. Yeah, I've uh, uh, I, I have that down. I have not seen it yet. But yeah, you'll love it. it. It's great, and she's in that. With respect to viewing, one thing that I've been watching over the last month, when The Wire, this, when the show The Wire came out, I, I didn't really, I didn't watch it. But over the last month, I've been watching it, and I think I'm going to write an essay about it. It's, you know, quite captivating. And um, it, 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 it anticipated events that later, you know, were front page events. And um, I think it's a very deep show. I think it's a very interesting show. Another aspect about the show that, uh, that has grabbed me, of course, is the, the very tragic death, Kenneth 
I guess, uh, Williams, uh, one of the stars of the show, died yeah. just, you know, recently of a drug overdose. So there's any of it. That, that show is very much on my mind. As far as reading, most of my reading has to do is is it's, it uh, has to do with this 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 book that I am uh, writing. I'll I'll finish it. I'll finish it in the next year. I've been at work on it for eight years now. Oh my God! This is the one about the 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 young woman. No, this, well, this, it's about the second reconstruction. It's okay. the legal. So it's there's a, legal a chapter history. in it on this. What was the name yes. again? Uh, Her name was. Um, Mary Hamilton. Miss Mary Hamilton. Of course. Miss Mary Hamilton. Right. And um, a lot of my reading is focused on the uh, upsurge in protests in the mid-20th century. This book is going to be, you know, how did the protests in the mid-20th century against racial injustice, how did that change American law? That is the subject of my next book. And most of my reading is focused on that subject. Well, your current book, it's just out. Say it loud on race, law, history, and culture. You are saying it loud, as I said before. It's great stuff. I want to thank um, the, uh, the Miami uh, Book Fair for having Randall on. Uh, Randall um, is just one of the many authors from around the world participating in the Miami Book Fair in 2021. It's the nation's largest gathering of writers and readers of all ages. Um, and they're all looking forward to sharing their work, thoughts, and new ideas with everyone in person and online. I'm not sure, Randy, whether you're going to Miami or not. And for more information on the Miami Book Fair, uh, uh, go to uh, miamibookfair.com um, or follow uh, MBF at, at Miami Book Fair. Um, so that's great stuff. Uh, Randall Kennedy, you've always been a hero of mine, and you're as good in person as you are on paper. I want to really thank you for a wonderfully loud, colorful interview. You don't, you don't, uh, you're not shy uh, to, to, uh, to, to punch out when you need to, and at other times you're, you're complex and messy. And I appreciate you having on the show, and I want you to promise you'll come back on to talk about the new book when it's out. Happy to do so. Thanks so much for having me on. Be well.